0: The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Beryl Bell now presents his lecture, Kosher in the Post-COVID Age. I was asked to speak about the Kosher in the post-COVID era, if you want to call it that. We all hope it's the post-COVID era, whatever the case is, but it's not just COVID, there are a number of changes that um, have a major impact on uh, changes in the world of kosher. But in order to explain them, I need to go over some general background about things in the world um, that relate to kosher. And if any of you uh, years in the past, some of this might be repetitious, if you've been to any of my sessions in the past, um, I tell people that I think if the non-Jews knew what was going on with their food, a very, very large percentage of them would be eating kosher for reasons which don't really have to do specifically with, uh, with kosher, just in terms of uh, knowing what it is you're ingesting, and what it is you're buying, just the pure consumer protection issues um, and health issues, although the kosher laws are not per se um, directed towards health, but there are um, many uh, fringe benefits, if you want to call it that. And uh, we'll touch on some of them today, but mainly there's one issue. So this is from a magazine quality assurance and food safety, why the pandemic was the perfect storm for food fraud. We'll be going into some of the details of why that is, but you understand that food fraud, um, meaning that you intended to buy one thing, but what's inside is either completely something else, or it's adulterated with something else, But it's certainly not what you intended to buy. It's something different than what it says on the label. So that's fraud. And um, it's always been a problem. Uh, The Talmud talks about ways of combating that. And our uh, system for preventing food fraud is based on that. And the fact is that uh, the system of the FDA and other government agencies for preventing fraud does not possibly approach our level. So they can't really duplicate the system that we have. It's very, very restrictive. Um, I'll maybe go into some of the details, but if you have something that's not identifiable from looking at it, like if you have a whole fish, and there's the fish, it's got a head, it's got a tail, it has the skin, and you can identify it Or if you don't, you can go to someone else that is able to identify it. You can tell what it is. Is this a catfish or is this a red snapper? What is it? You can look at the skin if it still has scales on it. So then you can tell from there what kind of, at least you'll know it's a kosher fish. You maybe won't be able to tell what species it is, but you can tell what it is. Or if you have two pieces of meat, so there's really no way to tell. Whether it's uh, whether it's kosher or not, just from looking at it, and therefore, Torah law requires that the one that made it kosher, the Sheikhet, the mashgiah, whoever it was that was making it kosher, before it goes out of his hands, he has to put a double seal on it, which means two non-falsifiable, uh, verifying um, signs. So, for example, what they do when they have in the in the in the, in the meat production, they'll have a whole side of beef. So they'll take a wire, and they'll put the wire through, and then they'll attach it. And it has a number, a unique number, and if you take it off, it will break, so you cannot use it a second time. Okay, that's one sign. Then you need a second sign. Okay, in order to go from one place to another, if there's not a Jew who keeps kosher that's traveling along with it is going in the hands of a delivery person or whatever the case is, it has to have a double seal. If it's something of that nature, like a piece of meat or a piece of fish and so on and so forth. So um, and and this, it speaks about adulteration to save money. All oh, back in the days of the Talmud, it's not something which is new. But in order to understand how this has changed during COVID and post-COVID and other influences as well that are um, disrupting the food chain and how it is that it's affecting, primarily I'll talk about fraud. There are other issues as well, but how it's affecting the idea of of fraudulent uh, labeling of food, um, you have to understand first the general background of food fraud. So I'm just going to give a general introduction. Some of you might be familiar with this, as I said before. We'll just give some examples to point out um, where it can show up. So you have. In um, a famous case in England, let's talk about meat. So, they had a number of years ago, it was called Horsegate. You know, everything becomes a gate, one becomes a problem. So, they called it Horsegate. What happened? There's a, a, cor- a chain of stores, Findus, is I think the way they pronounce it in England. It's like a Walmart sort of chain. And they're very, very large, and they produce their own food items too. So, they produce some beef lasagna. And then some inspector in Ireland for some unknown reason, just did a spot check and decided to do a DNA test on the meat and discovered it was 100% horse meat. And um, although it is legal to sell horse meat, but you have regulations and you have certain places which are supervised. And this was illegally obtained horse meat, which means it was probably from horses that were sick and about to be um, uh, euthanized, and there was no supervision on them whatsoever. They were coming from. Uh, I'll soon show you how it, how they did it. But uh, the press had a great time with this. You know, we've been eating horse for months. Horse and school dinners. All these different headlines of the tabloids, and then of course the local supermarkets who were the local butchers. So they said, sorry, no horse meat, try the supermarkets <laughs> because the supermarkets were full of horse meat, you know, and the local butchers not. And of course, it became a uh, uh, nice uh, place for people to uh, make memes. So if in the lasagne, get it? Lasagne. Okay, you might have a horse on a plate, no horses, so on and so forth. So here's all the countries that were involved in this horse meat scandal. Um. And you see it reaches all the way to Hong Kong and uh, Finland. So there were two different chains by which it reached. So the and it was very, very complicated. It took a very long time to track this down. They didn't find all of them either. But this is a very, very oversimplified version of the places where they went. So I don't know if it's big enough for you to see the numbers over there. But um, one of them was originating Romania, the horses, the other one was originating in Poland. And in order to avoid different labeling requirements, so they shouldn't be caught, so they had to go to many countries. You see, over here in the red, it went eight different journeys until it finally got its way to England. You know, and they put it through Cyprus and put it through Luxembourg, and just going back and forth to different places in order to avoid uh, detection. Yes. Yeah, my part part of it is labeling requirements. So the fact is, the EU has very, very strict labeling requirements. So in other places, they would probably, even though it was all within the EU, but nevertheless, very, very strict uh, uh, labeling requirements. That's something. Yeah, it was fraud. Exactly, so the, a lot of these requirements are, are designed to prevent fraud, okay? But they got around it, okay? And Other countries, you know, the fact that it was all within the EU didn't really, you know, help them. You know, we have uh, this is constantly a battle. You know, in the United States, they confiscated a couple of years ago. They confiscated, I forget exactly how many hundreds of tons of honey that um, uh, was coming from China. And you're not allowed to bring honey from China because it's full of antibiotics. So you're not allowed to sell honey from China. Honey from China you can't sell in the United States because it's full of antibiotics. Okay, so what do they do? They take the honey from China and then I forget which country it was, but they, they uh, sold it to someone who repacked it and said, you know, you need country of origin is one of the ways of helping track things. So what do they do? So they repack it and they went to their product, I forget, I think maybe Indonesia, product of Indonesia. So it was in Chicago and somebody, one of the inspectors looks and says, Indonesia does not export honey. <laughs> like there's no they don't there's no honey industry in Indonesia. So obviously it's coming from somewhere else. So they went and did the paperwork and made a check and the antibiotics, okay, Chinese antibiotics. Next. Uh, it's known, I mean, in the in the in general in this issue of it, it's almost like China, it's almost like you don't even call it fraud. It's the regular way of doing business. It's just assumed. Um By many, you know, and there's so much food from China that uh, it's very, very difficult to uh, to supervise. Yes, the question was, how many inspectors are there in a meat packing plant? So it depends on the size of the plant and depends on the complexity of the um, operation. You have some places that it's all in one big room, and you can see from the front to the back. Okay, very small, slow operations. Um, But it's not just observing what's going on. He's got to label things. Okay, and the labeling, you know, you, you have, let's say, uh, let's say it's, it's beef, okay? So from 100 cows, maybe 30 will be kosher, 20 will be kosher, because the other one have diseases that make them treif. okay? But you don't know that until you check the lungs later on. In the meantime, they took the tongue and put it over here, and the liver is going this way, and you have to label every piece with a number, and you have to keep track of the numbers, because later on, you're going to find out that number three was kosher and number four was not. So which liver belonged to three and which one belonged to four so that you need people doing labeling. And um, it's, a, it's a very, it's a very, very big job, but you have to figure it out. You need people with experience and you need uh, Rava Mahshar, somebody that's in charge who understands enough of how it works um, in order to determine exactly how many you know we i give supervision to a place that produces chickens okay so there's the place where they're slaughtering the chickens the place they're taking off the feathers is another room the place where they're doing the eviscerating the cleaning out of all the internal organs and they check for diseases there too there's another room and then the salting is in a different floor so it's a very big op- very big operation let me go a little bit further so this is something which is very well known you know that meat is substituted but this idea of um, finding out that it's different species of animal, okay, especially once it's processed, you know, it's, it's in a lasagna. How are you supposed to know what it is? So DNA testing has made that possible now. And as it becomes um, less and less expensive, there's more and more people. You can go online now and buy a kit and check your food. Yeah. The largest uh, DNA repository um, in the world is in Canada's University of Guelph. And they have uh, you know, all different sorts of uh, species. But uh, okay, let's just go on over here. So this was uh, the Journal de Montréal. Anybody speak French here? Can I translate for us? Um, so this is, uh, they're not uh, overly fond of, um, in general, uh, non-Quebecois people and, uh, and Jews. Not that either. And they once did a, uh, 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 an expose, and they took samples of veal. Veal is a young cow. It's supposed to be veal. The definition of veal is say under 12 months, for example. So they, would, uh, they, went, to a rest- they went to restaurants, non-kosher restaurants. This had nothing to do with kosher, per se. It has to do with fraud. And um, took samples and sent them in for DNA testing. And they did the same for butchers. So um, it says over payer de vous, manger de pork. Pay for veal and eat pork because they found a very large percentage of what was being sold as veal was in reality pork. So here you had 25 restaurants, 14 of them were selling um, veal was really pork, 58%. Um, two out of five butchers, 40%. You know, in the Israelis, they call pork lavan, you know, it's white in comparison in color with beef. So uh, the people couldn't tell the difference, even buying raw meat in the, in the butcher store. So once you get an expose like this, so they try to get more mileage out of it and write a few articles. So they said the Muslims, the Juifs, that's us, the Muslims and the Jews were, you know, the, the ones that were hardest hit. So they made, a, they made some interviews. So they went to Sydney. Sydney is an old butcher and uh, anybody knows Montreal, in, in the Cote saint Luke. i went to sydney and they asked him you know could this happen by you he says there's no way this could happen by me they said come on just because you're you're jewish you know you think you're better than anybody else why couldn't this happen why couldn't uh, people end up the same thing by you he says i don't even have the keys to my store i don't have the keys to the fridge the rabbi has the keys to my fridge you know and he doesn't get any extra profit from uh from selling something else so uh it was actually interesting because one of the columnists a non-Jewish woman, Quebecois columnist, wrote a column afterwards saying that she heard about this problem years ago, and she was concerned, so she asked her friends, and some of them said, yes, it's true, it's a big problem, and if you want uh, to make sure that it's veal, go to a kosher butcher, go to the Jews. So she said she went to a kosher butcher, and she looked at the price of veal, and she said, this is crazy, look at the price of the veal, I could get it in the supermarket for, for so much less. And then she said, oh, I get it. <laughs> and that's why it's more expensive. Sure, there's other reasons also. But that again, meat is another subject in and of itself. And then she wrote after that, so she it was beyond her uh, budget to buy a lot of veal. So she says she rarely feeds veal to her family. But when she does, she buys kosher. And this is just to make sure you're getting uh, what you paid for. So I put a thing, this is like a translation from the French where uh, you know they uh, concluded the article about buying in kosher. And I said, well, even the, if another Montreal recommends to eat kosher. You know, this is uh, something else. Question. That's a great question. Um, it's it's they they say that they were defrauded, <laughs> whether they were or not. So, in a in a restaurant, something like this, it's relatively easy to, to trace. But in our next subject, which is fish, it's almost impossible to trace. Because the the chain of supply for something like this, especially in Canada, is relatively short. Okay, so there's only a certain number of people. So they might be able to show you an invoice for veal and say that they were sold by a supplier. um, Something different. The butcher shop would not be able probably to get away with such an argument, but the restaurant might be able to get away with such an argument. And they could plead innocence. But when it comes to the next subject, which is that of fish, major problems. So this is from CBC. And it just happens to be you know, an article here you can find in any one of the 50 states. You just Google fish fraud and you'll find what's going on over here. Here, think you're eating tuna, think again about mislabeled uh, mislabeled fish. That is probably for the kosher consumer today the biggest problem, the things that we have because the Jews, if you're, we're not worried about pork being uh, substituted for veal in a kosher restaurant because the veal is also no good for us; it has to be kosher veal. So we have a system with mashkichim. and if something comes without a proper seal um, identified with an acceptable kosher supervision, so the mashkich is going to reject it. So we can't eat in those restaurants anyway. So we're somebody's eating kosher, so they're automatically protected. From that type of um, that type of fraud, but when it comes to fish, you know, it used to be that you know the people, at the, let's say in the 20th, early 20th century, the people that were like really, really careful about kosher, the meat industry, uh, the state of uh, kosher meat was was uh, not in a good place, to put it mildly, at the turn of the century, beginning of the 20th century, and from then came the idea that if you really want to keep kosher, you'll eat fish. Okay, today. I don't know if it's the opposite, but there are many, many more problems when it comes to fish. I mean, there, there's issues obviously in meat uh, supervision too, but fish is like totally, totally out of control, and people think it's fine, and they'll have a sign that says that it's uh, such and such a type of fish. Uh, if you're like me, that uh, I don't speak too much French, you know, so the English speakers in in, in Montreal, so like you fake it basically, you know, you, you sort of guess. You see something and it, okay, so a pamplemousse, you can't figure out what a pamplemousse is unless you learn the translation, but it's pretty easy to learn because it's got a grapefruit stuck in there and it says pamplemousse, so you figure out, now I know what a pamplemousse is, very good. But when you go to the fish store and it says basa on it, B-A-S-A, so what would you guess that is? Bass, right, so bass is a kosher fish, no problem. The only problem is basa is not bass, it is Vietnamese catfish. And it's not a French word, it's a word that the Vietnamese made to get around catfish tariffs in the United States. Okay, so uh, it's really the Zohar says that this world is Alma de Shikra, it's a world of falsehood, but they have really uh, uh, brought this to its uh, pinnacle of perfection uh, to avoid being detected. Um, So even the tests the laboratory tests they have to keep changing the laboratory tests because they find ways of falsifying the laboratory tests so i don't know if you're familiar when they had the baby formula um case in china first it was in the pet food from china and there were many many animals that were becoming sick and dying domestic pets dogs and cats and then it turned out baby formula, they found melamine. Melamine first in the animal food, then they found the baby formulas. There were a bunch of babies, not only that got hospitalized and sick, but there were a number of them that died. And they ended up, so China, they don't mess around, so they found the people, they did it, and they executed them. You know, That was, uh, that was uh, why, because it hurt the economy, because people stopped buying Chinese formula, baby formula. Why in the world would you put melamine in, in baby formula, because in order to, sh- to show certain benchmarks you have for quality control that the government checks to make sure it has sufficient nutrients and sufficient uh, uh, quality levels, you can get by and fool the lab test because melamine also has that chemical. So they put the melamine in order to pass the lab test. So, in other words, the system of supervision from the government was responsible for the fraud. They wouldn't have put in the melamine if not for the supervision. It's a very crazy sort of situation. In any case, in, in the fish industry, um, we have a lot of very, very accurate information that the kosher world, so, in, in, in the kosher field, Almost all, uh, you yeah, have very, very few. Some, there are some supervising agencies who will basically rely on, on the different other factors, including government supervision, but most of them don't and require uh, identification of the fish, which means the fish that comes from China. I spoke to the rabbi, the supervisors over there. I so said, how do you manage? How can you look at every single fish? I mean, so he says he gives his mashkichim gloves, and they're required to scrape every fish until they see a scale flip so they get very fast at it you know you have different fingers on different fish you know and that things are going by at great speed you know the the white fish was being pr- produced in winnipeg over there has a light shining on the fish that's going on the line and he sits in a certain place and he can see the scales on each fish and you have to figure out how to do it and on, on mass so that's the way we supervise to know that the fish is being kosher. And then once it's processed, it has to be sealed or double sealed. If you don't have that, so then you can't really tell from looking at it, what it is. I was once at a conference that they were discussing fish fraud. So the person that was responsible for the United States Coast Guard for this was there and he spoke and uh, he said, they have no way of stopping it. They don't have enough people. They're trying to keep people from blowing up ports and sneaking in explosives and things like that and poisonous things. So they have no, they said the industry, he says, has to, uh, has to supervise, Is that Andy Kohn, a Jewish boy Um So I asked him, can you identify a fish from looking at the flesh of the fish? He says, no, no, nobody can do that. I said, what about if you have the, uh, just a, a piece of filet? You have a whole filet over there? he says, no, nobody can do that. he said, what do you need? He says, I need a head, a tail. and and the skeleton. I said, great, you just quoted the Talmud. Yeah, that's what it says by us. That's what you need. Um, In any case, um, if you go to a a, a sushi restaurant that does not have kosher supervision, you order white tuna. It turns out that the testing that they've done show that your chance of getting white tuna is about zero. Okay, it's much too expensive and nobody can tell the difference. Probably most people that have ordered white tuna in a sushi restaurant have never eaten it in their life. And the way that we, have, we know this, we don't have that many, su- we, we don't supervise non-kosher sushi restaurants, right? It's not our business to know what's going on over there. The reason we have so much information is because of this organization called Oceana. Can't really read it it's, uh, against, the, against the background. Fight Seafood Fraud and Illegal Fishing. They are in environmental protection and endangered species. So they want to make sure that the endangered species in the fish world are not being caught and overfished and uh, to save the oceans and so on and so forth. So these environmental, I don't know about all of them, this one is very, very, very well funded and they do very, very good research and they're doing DNA testing all over the place and they're constantly giving out their reports and they're the ones that uh, came up with this uh, sort of information, the extent of, um, of how great a problem it is. This was just one of their uh, reports. Um, that uh, So you can see the, the red is a uh, mislabeled species of fish. And uh, the blue is uh, correct. So in a grocery store, it was only 18%. I mean, 18% mislabeled is also pretty bad, right? Okay. Restaurants, that goes up to 38%. And in the sushi store, 74%. That does not mean that 74% of the fish over there was a different species. I mean, 74% of the sushi stores had uh, were serving one species where in reality, it was a different species. Again, they were looking for fraud. They were not necessarily looking for kosher. That was not their business, but once something can be substituted, it's really impossible to tell from looking. So you can see on the right and the left, I'm not gonna go through each of them individually, but this is, um, there are two different species, the right and the left, and to the naked eye, um, very difficult to, uh, I, impossible to identify. Um, as I mentioned, the question was brought up before about um, the food chain that the person can claim that they, uh, they themselves were a victim of fraud. And in the fish, there's so many steps from the time it was harvested. It could be caught in the ocean. A large percentage of it is farmed. Um, aquaculture, as they call it, and um, were sold to one person, to another person, to another person, and who changed the label on the box from catfish to halibut? You know, go find out who did that. So here's just a case to give you the, the magnitude of the fraud. This is from 2010. Very rarely do they catch anybody that they're able to prosecute them because they always blame it on someone else. And to find the... Moshe Zuchmer, find the person that really did it, is uh, often impossible. Here's somebody they caught, Thomas George, who sentenced to 22 months in prison for importing falsely labeled fish from Vietnam, evading over $60 million in federal tariffs. That's $60 million of taxes. I think some of the big mafia figures they caught for tax evasion. You know That's the easiest way to catch somebody, it seems. As well as up to half a million dollars in other mislabeled fish. You know, like that was... Half million dollars of fish and sixty million in uh, in, uh, in in taxes. Okay, so the problem is very very broad. It's a very big problem, um, and this is in general. And this is all pre COVID. My subject is about COVID and what COVID and subsequent to COVID has made this much much worse. But it was a bad enough problem beforehand. You had a question before. I'm sorry. Skin on is not sufficient unless it has scales. If you can see the scales, which usually it doesn't because they took the scales off. Now, if you're skillful and you can see, somebody can show you many fish. First of all, there are some fish that by the time you catch them, they lost their scales. So mackerel, for example, really doesn't have any scales. And you can't tell, you know, if it's a big mackerel to tell the difference between a piece of mackerel, I don't know, baby shark or something like this. You can't really tell the difference to a certain species um, just from looking at the skin. Tuna. Tuna also loses most of its scales in order to be a kosher fish. It doesn't have to have scales when you catch it. It has to have scales sometimes. It has to have at least one scale in the course of its lifetime. And many of them lose their scales once they're caught. Famous story from the Ramban that that there was fish that were assumed to be uh, kosher. I heard from one of my teachers. He was in Japan after the war, and the Sephardic Jews in Japan were eating flounder. You know, in, in Poland and Lithuania, they didn't see flounder. And the flounder that they had over there at least did not have any scales by the time you caught it. They said, how are you eating it? They said, listen, these people are starving. I said, you don't want to eat it, don't eat it. But we have a tradition to eat it. And it turns out that it has, uh, uh, it does have scales. But uh, tuna usually has some scales. I once had a mashkiach, you know. Call me, You got a big side of tuna in a sushi restaurant. You can't find any scales. What are you supposed to do with it? So I found for him a scale. Okay, so now let's get, this is from the, EU, European Parliament question. Europe-wide fight against the agro-mafia. So I got it, agro-mafia. It turns out, I, I'm, I have a few slides on this, and it's not just that it's coming from the mafia, but it's just something that since they deal in volume, um, they've become a, a large a subject of, uh, of uh, pursuit. And basically, it, it turns out that the, the the mafia has discovered you can make more money in food fraud than you can in drugs. So as an example, although it doesn't have major cautious implications for Passover maybe, but the rest of the year not, the most falsified item, you know, including everything, not just food, in in Europe is olive oil, EVO, extra virgin olive oil. Um, And, you know, they're selling more um, extra virgin olive oil made in Italy than Italy produces. You know, there's some cases where the fraud is very, very clear. There's a type of a very special type of honey that comes from Australia and it's being sold uh, like 10 times more than the, than, the, than the Australia produces. So here's a, a case that um, recent investigations, the two of the, the Camorra is like, Mafia-like, but not the Mafia, they made a deal gives them near total control of fruit and vegetable transport in many parts of Southern Italy. The annual turnover by these agro-mafia groups has put at 16 billion euros per year, okay? Five billion euros in Sicily alone, where the involvement of organized crime has led to a 300% increase in consumer prices. Okay, I'm sorry, I didn't make myself clear. We're still pre-COVID now. This is before COVID makes things worse. This is just what's going on over here. So here's another uh, number of, uh, they say the profit margins on uh, counterfeit olive oil can go as high as 700% profit. And they say that you can sell for $50 a gallon falsified olive oil that costs $7 to produce. Profit margins three times higher than that of cocaine. So they found themselves a uh, good business. So here, the olive oil, Freud. Um, here's another uh, an example. So They figured it now 15% of the total estimated mafia turnover is in agriculture. There was one uh, government employee in Italy who decided to try to stop some of it, and they tried to kill him. Um, so here they quote him over there, Giuseppe Antosi. So is it with profit margins as high as 2,000%, why sell drugs or carry out robberies? There's a lot of uh, money in this. Okay, so this is all still pre-COVID. Yes, question. The question was, I'll rephrase your question, um, what's, the best, what's your best bet for making sure that when you're buying extra virgin olive oil, you're getting it? Maybe it's better to get made in Greece or made in Spain or made in Italy or something like that. And it's uh, they, the labels are just interchangeable. They'll just... Label it as whatever they can sell it as. But on that subject, again, as kosher wise is concerning, they're replacing it with other oil. By them, fraud is an extra virgin from another country. That's really not what's happening. They're using uh, lower quality um, olive oil, but it's still in general olive oil. In almost all cases, it's kosher, so it's not a, major, not a major issue. But if you want to research the subject, there are a few books now already out on the subject. It's been well researched in the press and you can find online. All of the major conscious agencies consider extra virgin olive oil, although every year it gets a hotter and hotter debate, but it's still considered to be what's called in the kosher industry a group one ingredient. A group one ingredient means something that does not need supervision. So like salt is a group one ingredient. Water is a group one ingredient. So extra virgin olive oil is still considered to be a group one ingredient. And it is. If it's really extra virgin olive oil, it doesn't need supervision. The question is, is that what you're getting? So it's still, you know, they are uh, there's more research being done about it. And there are labs that are doing DNA analysis and so on and so forth. So and I have to now get to the next subject, which is really the subject that was asked. But you can't really properly understand it, I don't think, unless you have the context. So what happened with COVID? So um, food fraud, one of the big winners during the COVID pandemic, coronavirus has created the perfect storm for those who commit food fraud. So this uh, professor um, in England um, heads a unit that was founded after the Horsegate incident, and uh, they put probably more effort than probably any country in the world now to combat food fraud, so they just know more than anybody else how insufficient their efforts are. okay they're just finding more things, but very, very difficult um, to. To, to keep track of even before COVID. What happened with COVID? So what effect did the pandemic have on our food supply? So this is from the House of Commons of England that made a subcommittee to investigate uh, the food supply because, you know, people were having problems not just with toilet paper, they're having problems getting food during COVID, okay? So the, cor- c- the coronavirus pandemic disrupted the entire UK food supply system, okay? there, There were... I'm speaking with one of the people in the hotel over here. It says the hotel here can't get enough staff. It also looks like plenty of staff. Okay, for them, it's not nearly enough staff. And every business in the United States is like that. And the food business is like this too. Okay, so the personnel was one problem. I'll give a, a, list of, a list of issues. But the whole supply chain fell apart. Okay, so lack of inspections. Government inspectors were not allowed into plants. Kosher inspectors were not allowed into plants. So what do we do if we can't make a visit? You know, we have the power, to, I say we, just in general, the, the kosher a- agencies have the, have the ability, contractual ability to walk into a plant anytime we, we want and make a, an inspection. Some uh, I do some with the MK in Montreal. So there's one place that we do not have access to without prior Um, notification and that's a wholesale mustard plant in Quebec and the reason we can't walk in whenever we want is because we need the approval of the Department of Homeland Security of the United States mustard mustard yeah mustard you know mustard gas used as a weapon can make explosives out of mustard you can kill people with mustard (laughs) okay so there they're selling huge amounts of mustard so in order to walk into that plant, you need clearance. So that, okay, well, we'll deal with them. So we'll tell them, yes, we're coming tomorrow morning. And we'll tell them, as we have no choice. But it's a very simple, we're not worried they're going to substitute something. We're not relying on the Department of Homeland Security. It's just the ingredients, the way the production works, There, there's nothing really non-kosher they would put in there. Anything they could put in there, it would be a cashless problem, would be much more expensive. So we don't suspect they're going to do something to cause themselves to lose money but in any case getting into the plants was a problem so we normally don't do um televisits or paper audits very very you know when you're dealing with these companies even to know exactly what they get the people in the company don't necessarily know they even before covid they could get this product they could get that product okay so they're getting such and such a spice where are you getting it from you're getting it from China. You're getting it from Afghanistan. You're getting it from Malaysia. Where is it coming from? They don't really know. Whatever, whatever cumin uh, uh, came into the came into to the delivery, that's what they got. And sometimes they order one thing and they get another thing. You cannot figure out what's going on until you send somebody physically there who sees what's going on. So when happens over over here, when you can't even get into the place, how are you supposed to make an inspection? The same thing for the government inspector. Okay, so that's something which this whole, how, how inadequate the inspection system was before during COVID came incredibly less adequate as a result of a lack of inspections, problem number one. Problem number two, food shortages, the supply chain, increased demand means the price goes up. So if you have a product and there's a shortage of it, So good, take a different product that you have, label it as something different and sell it as that. So much higher profit margins for the people that are doing this sort of stuff. So decreased supply, I mentioned shortage of worker, shortage of products, and what's going on in the future. So now, I don't know if people are aware of this, the whole situation with, with fertilizer. People probably heard what was going on in the Netherlands with the farmers that the, for environmental protection, they tell them to cut down on their fertilizer. Well, if you cut down on fertilizer use, then uh, you're in decreasing yield. So this happened in Sri Lanka. I don't know if people know what's going on in Sri Lanka, but this, this policy ended up putting large, large numbers of people into starvation status because they're unable to produce enough food to feed the population. So as a result of all of this, things become more expensive. There are less food available, so the profit margin becomes even greater. Another issue, okay, higher prices. So now we have such inflation in food. This I don't need to tell you. You go into the supermarket and you see what's the, what the price of meat and what's with the price of all commodities. And when the co- price of commodities goes up, so the price of everything else also goes up you know one of the things that happened to the to the price of meat when they started this was already years ago when they started putting ethanol into the gasoline um, supposedly for environmental reasons there are those that say it was just you know do favors for people to get the uh, government subsidies because the ethanol evidently doesn't give us good gas mileage whatever the case is the price of corn went sky high as a result of this most of the corn that's produced in the United States goes to goes to animals or something else doesn't go for human use. So then the cost of feed goes up, the cost of the food goes up. Fuel in terms of transport, everybody sees in their they fill up their gas tank. What happened to their price of fuel? So all the truckers are adding on that price also. So the price goes up against the profit. motive goes up and just the supply chain in general, the supply and demand and the supply chain gets disrupted and people the supermarket shelves are empty. So it's a much greater motivation for people to do fraud. So here, this is Interpol. Interpol is the uh, international police organization um, that deals with uh, cross-border crime. So they started uh, an operation called OPSIN. So this article over here from July, 2020. So they just finished OPSIN number nine. They've already passed 10, I don't know, maybe they're up to 11 by now, of um, making raids for falsified food and drink. So here, OPSON-9 um, confiscated more than $40 million worth of potentially dangerous fake food and drink, Okay, mislabeled things that they caught. Um, 19 organized crime groups were involved, they arrested a couple hundred people. But again, in terms of the total, as we saw the numbers that were going on in Italy, $40 million is a drop in the bucket of what it is that they caught. Very, very small amount. And, uh, okay, they're doing something. So here's a magazine, Food Science and Technology, had an article here. Has COVID-19 caused a significant increase in observed food fraud instance? Okay, so here, this was in 2020. 94% increase in adulteration, 25% increase in tampering, um, 37% increase in counterfeit. So adulteration means you still have some of the labeled product there. There's just other stuff added to it. You know, if it's counterfeit, then the whole thing was uh, like the case where they were selling the veal as the pork they were selling as veal, then the whole thing is a different species or the beef lasagna that ended up being horse. So that would be counterfeiting as opposed to adulteration as you mixed something into it. And that is very, very common. And um, here are the types of commodity targets, honey and other sweeteners, 800 percent increase. There's also a problem with the bee populations in different places. Just another issue with cigar- this is also pre-COVID. This had nothing to do with COVID. Meat and meat products, 388 percent increase. Um, herbs and spices, 270 percent increase. Uh, when it comes to fraud, although meat and fish are sort of at the, and honey, honey is very expensive, and it's very easy to adulterate, and they keep finding lab tests to detect it, and then they keep finding, the the counterfeiters find ways to fool the lab tests, so they have to make another lab test, and they're, they're on the, they, all the counterfeiters are also on the cutting edge of technology to keep from being caught, um, in any case, I think probably the next scandal that's going to really make big news is spices. It's already hit in certain cases. You had a recall uh, a few years ago on turmeric. And turmeric is um, became famous. There was, a, there was a village in India where the children were losing their sight. God forbid, they were going blind and all different sorts of diseases. And they couldn't figure out what was going on. They sent a the team from Harvard University down to make an examination, they tested all different sorts of things, and then they finally found the culprit. The culprit was turmeric because um, they were actually consuming large, large amounts of turmeric in their diet, not only because it's part of their diet, but also because it's considered to be healthy. Well, it might very well be healthy if it's turmeric and just turmeric, but what happens is this a distinctive color. The turmeric has a very uh, special yellow color. And if it doesn't come out the right color, then people don't want to buy it. So they put in artificial colorings that contain lead chromate. So they were ingesting huge, huge amounts of lead. Um, and that was the, identified as the cause of all of these health problems. Now, pure spices, again, I I would like to, I'm telling you the truth now. I would like to tell you that eating kosher is 100% solutions for this, but it's not. Because there's no way, physically speaking, that you can give proper kosher supervision to avoid adulteration like that. Nobody is going to pay the price of, you would need supervision on the spices like you need supervision on the meat. Nobody's going to pay for that. And it's not even practical. You're You're producing a certain type of spice. It's being produced in, I don't know, Sri Lanka, and they harvest it 12 months a year. So what are you going to do? How are you going to supervise that? You could take a a small amount of it. It actually happened when they made a recall a couple of years ago. I started to say it was a recall in the United States of turmeric that was just randomly tested. They do very, very little testing. Um, It's too expensive, too uh, time-consuming, and they caught a bunch of turmeric on the market, and there were a number of kosher brands. They were also recalled because there was lead in it. So it's it's something that the um, spiking inflation and the price of fuel and the shortage of labor, all of these things are just making much, much worse something that was in some fields a real problem, other cases a potential problem and uh, it's just something that's going to need uh, probably more consumer awareness till people put their foot down and say that the government has to do something about it. But on the other hand, people want food and they want it at an affordable price. And anything that's gonna drive up prices now, the government's not going to do. It's expensive enough as it is, and it's difficult enough to to feed the population, question. The question was like a whole piece, I don't even think I ever saw a whole piece of turmeric, but um, okay so if, the, the more the, the less processed something is the less chance that something's being done to it okay it's not a guarantee that nothing's being done to it you know if you're able to identify a piece of turmeric then all the power to you but but it's hard for me to believe that nothing happened to it on the way there you know the things are um, what sort of preservative they're using and what's their drying materials but obviously you're not when you're getting a piece like that, they're not going to be using food coloring on the inside of it. I guess you could feel it. Um, but if it has that bright color on the outside, it probably would be the same uh, uh, The same issue. There are many things. I, I mean, I'll just go th- through some general issues. Again, this is not, from now on, I'm not talking about the special um, increase of problems over the last few years, because there are we had enough problems before that. I'll just mention some general um, issues in Kashrus that um, people think that you could read the label in order to know what's going on inside the food. Okay, so one problem is maybe they switched it. Let's say they didn't switch it. Okay, then are we safe? Not necessarily. So. This is, this is the way the industry works now. This is no fraud, nobody doing anything illegal over here. People think that you can rely on reading the label to know what's inside the food. That is not true. All ingredients need to go on the label. Okay? There are certain things that don't need to go on the label. So processing agents do not need to go on the label. What's the difference between an ingredient and a processing agent? One of my ex-students from years ago probably remembers this from all uh, well, the new stuff you missed. But the uh, this is uh, um, processing agents are um, there to make the processing of the food easier for the people working in the factory. They're, it's not the intention that it should be in the food. You end up eating it anyway. But it doesn't need to go on the label because they don't really want it there. Okay. So if you have... Um, your spices uh, clumping in the container. And it's difficult to pour out when you want to add it to the food. So you need to add an anti-caking agent. So these processing agents, there are many, many different categories in each one. There are many different products. Um, And oils and fats are, um, for many of them, uh, what what they need. Now, it could be animal fat, it could be vegetable fat. You can have vegetable oil, you could have animal oil. All of these processing agents are available in a kosher form. Most often, they're not even more expensive. You just need someone to take care to make sure that uh, the anti-caking agent, for example, is something which is kosher rather than not. Anti-foam agents, you know, if you cook some, pa- some pasta in your kitchen, you leave it cooking too long, so it could overflow, right? So in a, in a factory, let's say you have a vat the size of this room, if that overflows, Okay, you have danger, you have your profits, so to speak, going down the drain, you know, because you're, you want to make sure that that doesn't happen, so you have to add an antifoam agent and there are all different sorts of agents. There's also small um, percentages that uh, since we live in an imperfect world, there are certain um, things in the food that the government calls unavoidable defect. You don't want it there, they don't want it there, but it's there. And in order to make it 100% pure, you wouldn't be able to afford it. So they have uh, what they call defect action levels that if it reaches a certain point, then they'll prohibit. They'll make a recall. Um, all, as far as I know, only the United States publicizes their defect action level uh, levels. And you can just Google it and you can see you know, how much of, I won't gross everybody out over here, but you can gross yourself out if you'd like and see what it is, You know, how much of this, a, a horrifying substance that you don't want to eat uh, they will allow before they make a recall um so you know when you get to a bottom of a container of oil and you want to get the last bit out then you hold it like this and you wait yeah because of the viscosity of the oil makes it stick to the wall the wall now if you have tankers you have tanker size a football field you're holding huge amounts of uh Of oil, and they're going to empty it out. So, let's say they have lard and they're unloading it in some other place, okay, and they're going to fill it up with palm oil and send it back. So, how, what do you think happens to the inside of those tankers? Okay, you think you got a bunch of people with like giant Q tips, you know, cleaning, or they're going to let it sit for a week to drain? They don't. So, there's a certain amount of unavoidable defect. So, in the past, I'm not, I haven't seen the most recent regulations, but in the past, it used to be 2% they would allow. 2% you got to keep it there until it's less than 2% of the old oil, which means that if it doesn't have kosher supervision, kosher supervision has to take into account this problem with the, with the tankers. Okay, Our supervision has to start back at the shipyard. So if you buy oil that does not have kosher supervision and it says 100% pure vegetable oil, the government is guaranteeing for you that it's at least 98% pure vegetable oil. Then if it's 98%, you're allowed to write 100% because the rest of it is called unavoidable defect. Question. Uh, The question was, is it better to buy the olive oil from the United States or Israel? I would like to say, you know, that it's better to buy it from Israel. But uh, curiously enough, the Rabbanut, uh, Chief Rabbin at the uh, the Kosher Department, happens to give out their alerts about olive oil right before Hanukkah. Even though, because people are buying a lot of olive oil for Hanukkah. Okay, and you see all the fraudulent labeling going on over there. It's really bad news. Question. And the question was, could you be assured that if you're buying organic that you don't have these problems? And the answer is no. In fact, some of the problems might be worse because, because since it's organic, let's say insect infestation is worse in organic produce than other produce. So that's one of the defects that the government lists over there. How many insects will they allow in the food before they prohibit it? We have a zero tolerance policy basically in the Torah, but if it's organic, uh, you have much bigger problems. So I would just like to give one last one last point over here. Um, just about things which are on the label and you don't know what they are. So just uh, somebody mentioned to me, they heard me speak 10 years ago and they remembered that I spoke with one of the one of the AV people. So when you see natural artificial flavoring on the label. So what would you prefer natural or artificial? Natural. Who wouldn't want natural, right? So castorium, you can find in a in a flavor factor, You'll find castorium. Anybody know in the French know what a castor is? A castor looks like this. So you have Lac castor in Montreal's Beaver Lake. Okay, there's a gland that's used as a natural flavoring. And civet, um, if you look in the book, it has a nice picture of a cat. And if you look in real life, it looks more like that. And SARS. A number of years ago, you had SARS one and they discovered that it came from China. What a surprise. And it came because the people were eating civet cats, okay? And the civet cats were carrying the SARS. Our COVID is SARS-2 or whatever it is. It's, It's a derivative of that. Civet is used as a natural flavor and it shows up on the label as natural flavoring. And the reason is because cats are natural. Okay, so the fact that you have something organic and natural is not necessarily a guarantee. Keep looking for those kosher symbols, and I'll stay for some questions. Thank you very much. Please visit MyJLI.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings. And ToraCafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.